land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave and ancient land to me. Children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land with me. And walk. Good evening. Welcome to Yada Yada Radio. Happy Shabbat to one and all. Uh, my wife and Dee decided about uh, three weeks ago that they would make an evening um, question and answer with Yada. Uh, we have come upon that evening. We actually don't have uh, Kirk, so we hope everything is right in the People's Republic of California. I understand they're being inundated now with more weather. Uh, but yes. we do have Dee with us, and Dee, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and start with questions. But I did want to uh, speak to one item in the, uh, the news because I think it is really significant. Uh, and that is today it was announced that the Chinese government, Z in particular, brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia to reestablish diplomatic relations uh, and to reestablish ambassadors and embassies uh, to normalize relations again. I mean, that's a stunner, folks. Uh, that is stunning. And it is, uh, it is so contrary to the narrative in Israel, which was that the only reason the Abraham Accords went forward was because Saudi Arabia gave its blessing for them uh, because it is the 800-pound gorilla in that world. Uh, and that Netanyahu was bragging that he anticipated normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia, uh, in particular to uh, create um, a wall in the Muslim world against, um, particularly with Iran, on the cusp of having a nuclear bomb. Uh, and so it is uh, It is absolutely devastating news. It's uh, uh, devastating for a number of reasons, two of which we have talked about on this program for a very long time. Uh, one of those is that uh, uh, that BRIC, which is, stands for uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, uh, India, and China, um, are brokering a, a new world economic order. 
that will not be based upon U.S. currency being the international reserve uh, currency. Uh, and we've talked about what happens when Saudi Arabia in particular, or any OPEC nation of consequence like Iran, uh, begins to trade oil for currencies other than the dollar, and that the Russians and the Chinese and, and uh, India and other nations are able to use their currencies to buy and sell on the international market only reason that the United States has been able to get by with quantitative easing, which is creating the illusion of solvency, uh, and has been able to run up a deficit that is in the 30 trillions of dollars. The most recent budget was uh, over $7 trillion. And I remember doing a show when it, when it was uh, $1 trillion. And now it is over $7 trillion. Uh, and the, the realization is the United States is bankrupt. And yes. the only reason we're even viable at the moment is because of the illusion of solvency. But that illusion of solvency will dissipate at a heartbeat the moment that uh, petrodollars no longer um, – are the source of uh, of, of um, uh, international trade, right? So that's where we are, and it is a uh, it is something that will have instantaneous and devastating consequences on the United States and the and the Western economies. The second thing is we've been talking for a long time about how the United States has effectively uh, ostracized much of the world, trying to control everybody, pretending that that it is the world is our sandbox to play in and that we can decide who is sanctioned and who we send weapons against and who we allow into our sandbox. The United States has really ostracized the world with Russia and China uh, uh, on, uh, on one side uh, and also the Shias, but it's been Europe, the United States and Sunni Muslims, particularly Saudi Arabia on the other. Yeah. If the United States loses control of Saudi Arabia, uh, that uh, balance uh, swings uh, massively in favor of China and Russia and Iran and the uh, other uh, nations that uh, would be part of BRIC. It uh, turns the United States from a, uh, a, the largest influencer in the world to a nation with a military they won't even have a use for. And we've been talking about that for some time as the world prepares itself for a world war. Uh, it is also devastating for Israel because the most likely first strike until the United States uh, pushed Russia into the point that she had no chance, no choice but to invade uh, uh, Ukraine. into Ukraine. And that we were, we literally gave Russia, that is the only option uh, for uh, her security, was to invade uh, uh, the Ukraine. And we've been working on that since uh, 2008 under the Bush administration and have doubled down during the Obama administration and doubled down uh, again with the Republicans uh, uh, going to um, 
Ukraine. Uh, this would be John McCain and uh, Lindsey Graham, the two highest ranking Republicans um, back uh, six years ago, declaring war on Russia with Ukraine being a proxy. Uh, and while it is likely that that mess that we have created will devolve into a nuclear confrontation. Um, when Iran gets a bomb, you can be assured that mutually assured destruction will mean nothing to them. They yeah. are bad. And they will deploy a bomb if they have yeah. the ability to use one. Uh, and it will start world war. Um, Netanyahu's and uh, and uh, Italy uh, today, and he told uh, a reporting agency that if this is not stopped, it's going to be a nuclear war is what it's going to lead to. And uh, the only mm-hmm. quibble I would have with him is he's yabbered way too long. Israel is either going to do something about it, and now it's in a very difficult place because it cannot rely on Saudi Arabia. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was the other day that Aperture Bajan also uh, bailed, and, and that's a big deal because uh, yeah. Israel needs uh, its bases to refuel, and Israel had bought their loyalty by sending massive amounts of, uh, of armaments and allowing their planes to pick up those armaments in Israel uh, in their war uh, against Armenia. So that's where we find ourselves. It is a devastating blow to the United States that has lost control of the situation. And the Biden administration is so comatose that they actually praised the deal and said, oh, this is a, a step forward for the world now. This is shaking in the bootstock. Oh we are really in a terrible spot. All right, so that's the, uh, the news. Uh, sorry to bring such bad news to you, but that is the reality of what this means. And, and even the talking heads, the pundits in Israel know it. Israel is highly divided at the moment. Uh, the left is having conniption fits over judicial reform. We should probably talk about that for a moment, too. Uh, okay. The Supreme Court in Israel is being viewed as if it were the Supreme Court in the United States, but nothing can be further from the truth. The Supreme Court in the United States has all of the justices uh, appointed by and approved by elected officials. That is not the case. It is that a court appoints its own. So they have absolutely no democratic influence over them at all. And they have become insanely liberal. In the United States, the Supreme Court um, has a single mandate, and they can rule on a single mandate exclusively. They can rule whether or not um, a... Uh, bit of legislation or a court decision was or was not constitutional. Does it comply with the U.S. Constitution or is it counter to the U.S. Constitution? That's it. Nothing else. They can't make a ruling because, well, they don't like a, a law that uh, was written because their politics differ from it. Like when they ruled on Roe v. Wade, it was on constitutional grounds only. It's not a federal right. And it's always been obvious that Roe v. Wade overstepped constitutional bounds. It's, it is not a mm-hmm. constitutional issue. And so no matter what you think about it, that isn't the way to go about solving the problem. Right. So uh, 
the problem in Israel is they don't have a constitution. Most people don't know that. There is no constitution in Israel. So the court, about a decade or so ago, took it upon itself to begin to make rulings on the laws that were being passed in the Knesset. So that this unelected group appointed themselves the deciders as to whether or not the laws of the elected group could stand. Not on the basis of a constitution, because there was none. So Israel needs, A, a constitution. B, they need to get rid of the stupid parliamentary system. And, of course, they have the parliamentary system for the same reason the Star of David is uh, their national symbol. They were harassed throughout the ages in Europe, and particularly uh, uh, in uh, Europe during the Second World War, by being forced to wear that six-pointed star to differentiate them for harassment. So Mm -hmm. they took that star upon themselves and said, that'll be our national symbol. It has nothing to do with David, nothing. And it doesn't even have a long history within Israel. In fact, it would be counter to the things that Yahweh has said through his prophets. But they took the symbol of shame and they wore it like a badge of honor. If you look at the parliamentary system in Israel, it is the worst government system ever devised. I think I'd rather have a Soviet-style government than I would have that. It is a government that exists by bribe. You have to form coalitions, and the way that you form coalitions is you promise people that don't get enough votes to matter other than to form the coalition all manner of things, like Rom was uh, promised some $6 billion worth of, uh, of support for the Muslim minority in Israel to vote for the last government. The enemy of Israel was awarded prizes to vote for that government. And then you have now uh, this coalition from hell that is uh, right-wing crazies forming with right-wing conservatives forming with religious crazies. And they've got some absolute wacko people in that government, all of which were made given promises to side with this coalition. It is a horrible form of government. And Israel has it because when they became a nation, it was carved out of the British uh, mandate. And the British, of course, who abused them, who lied to them, who did everything imaginable harmful to them, including promoting the name fake Estidia. They had the parliamentary system, and we're going to wear that as a badge of honor. Those people that, whose politics was so horrid and disruptive to us, we're going to wear that as our badge of honor. It was just flat-out stupid. But they don't have a constitution. They have a parliamentary system. And therefore, they need judicial reform. And to say that judicial reform is undemocratic is to have your head in the mud, which most progressives do. Unbelievably stupid. Now, I'm not going to say for a moment that Netanyahu's motivations are benevolent. They aren't. 
He's been attacked by the Supreme Court for uh, impropriety, so he uh, he despises the court system there. He used to support it. Now he despises it, and he has members of his coalition, particularly Derry, uh, that have been twice convicted, and he wants them reinstated, doesn't want these, the courts to be able to override what he wants to do. So... There you are, and they're splitting Israel in half at the time that the world's falling apart around them. This is a very bad thing. So uh, why don't we start? Uh, D, you uh, were the one that collected these questions. Why don't you start? We'll uh, do our best to answer some of them. All right. Uh, the first question we have is from Russ, and he wanted to know if Yahweh actually brought anyone back to life after they had physically died. The what are your thoughts? Answer, yeah, the answer to that question is, I don't think we really know. And you might say, well, okay, there's, there are uh, three statements, I believe, in um, uh, Kings. Um, mm-hmm. Malachi, if you, uh, if you will, is now two books, was uh, one. The difficulty with the book of Kings, is that you can't really apply the prophetic test to it. Because what right. does Yahweh say about a prophet? It's an individual statement. It's not, mm-hmm. he doesn't say look at a book and, and determine whether or not things in that book are all consistent, things in that book are, uh, are accurate prophetically past, present, and future. No, he, he talks about an individual who claims to be a prophet, who make statements that then God gives us the criterion to determine whether or not that is accurate. That situation does right. not exist within uh, the book of Kings up to a point. There are places, both in Chronicles and Kings, which are, which are histories, that's what they're written for, uh, whereby there are individuals who make prophetic statements. Uh, uh, Dode is, uh, is a great example uh, of them. Uh, uh, Shalomo, Solomon is another uh, example. So there are recordings, and this is also true in the book of Shamuel, who was both a judge and a prophet. But there are statements where individuals who have proven they have prophetic credentials are speaking, and uh, therefore you can validate those claims. But if it's just a narrative, uh, and in fact, I think the last narrative on a resurrection, uh, I don't think it's true. Uh, and, and it's uh, um, it's just a narrative. We, we don't know who brought us the narrative, but the narrative is uh, uh, Elisha was, um, was buried. There was some fanfare and a, a band playing nearby, and a dead body was thrown on top of his, which is a very odd circumstance because they (laughs) just didn't throw bodies in the ground. And, and since that was not the Jewish way of, uh, of burying somebody is not to throw a body in the ground and dead people don't typically fall uh, inside of the grave of someone anyway, but they say that the moment this person touched their bones, they jumped back up and was alive. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's in second uh, Malachim, uh, 13th chapter. I don't think it's true. Yep. There's no, 
no rhyme or reason for it. We don't know the name of the individual. The individual doesn't go on to do anything. We don't know why the individual was dead, how long the individual was dead, why he was there. We don't know anything. And so it comes across as, all right, uh, there is no book for uh, Elsha, so we should, uh, um, you know, burnish his resume. I, I or say I don't think it's true. Uh, can I prove that it's not true? No, but he sure as heck can't prove to me that it is. It doesn't make any sense. Now, there are uh, uh, another two. Uh, one is by Elia, who obviously is a prophet. Um, and right. Elia is staying in a woman's home, uh, and um, her uh, son dies. And Elia um, is attributed a statement that I don't think he would make. The statement that's attributed to him is, you know, God, here I am in this woman's home. Why did you bring this, uh, this torment on her by uh, killing uh, her son? That's paraphrased. Um, and that's just something Elia's not going to say. We live, we die. All of us. I mean, there, Elia was, was an example, never died, but, uh, but you know, that, that's just the, the way it is. Um, uh, we have our, our ailments. Um, and so, yeah, Elia is not going to blame Yahweh for this woman's uh, son uh, becoming ill and, and possibly dying. And, and we don't know if he was even dead. I mean, we're dealing right. in a period of time where they did not have the, the equipment that we exactly. have that can measure brain waves and, uh, and heart rhythms and all that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and so a person that could be in a coma. Well. Yeah, they don't even know it. Uh, but anyway, uh, Elia um, says some magic words and, and, uh, and uh, hangs <laughs> in there, and, and, uh, and lo and behold, the person lives. But again, we don't have a moral of the story. Do you know the story of the floating axe head? Do you know that story about the floating axe head with Elisha and it's mm-hmm. turned into like this metal head floated down the river? Yep, you know, I was yep. looking at that one. No context yeah. to the story. I went ahead and right. translated it. And the moral yep. of the story is he fished the axe head out of from under the water with a stick. Yeah. Nothing illustrious. It, nothing. It was just. <laughs> right. And so I read something no like miracles. that and I say it's a historic book. It has yeah. inaccuracies in it uh, because mm-hmm. no history is perfect. We're all flawed. It had many authors over a long period of time. Uh, and and right. there are things in it that are, are, are likely true and that are worthwhile and that have merit. There's other things that are just interesting because they're histories. Uh, right. And there's uh, other things which I think are, uh, are untrue and actually work against us. In these three cases, um, that would, there's something going on that is different than what we're told and the author didn't understand it. And, and so uh, do I think Yahweh could make that happen? Yes. But if he's going to make that happen, it's going to be for a reason, and the reason's going to matter, and he's going to tell us the reason. Right, exactly. That, uh, okay, long answer to a short question, but uh, that's my, uh, <laughs> my answer to it. And by the way, you know, just because those are my conclusions, I think I've made it pretty clear that um, I've studied the text like uh, others have, 
Um, and when I read things like this, uh, I, uh, I try to apply Yahweh's test. And if I cannot apply Yahweh's test, then I use a, a reasonableness test. Mm-hmm. And so uh, based upon a reasonable test, I'm saying I don't think uh, it's, uh, it's true. And if there's any one of those three that is true, it would be the one with Elia. And the only reason that the Elia one might have some merit is that uh, Elia does not have a book of its own. Yahweh was not revealing great swaths of prophetic insights to him. He's dealing with the Israel of its day and, and serving as Israel's conscience, essentially as Israel's conscience of the day. And so to have someone who witnesses him do something that is positive in their life for bringing an individual uh, back from the uh, pretense of, uh, of death would enhance his credibility and his credibility it was important because he was the conscience uh at the right. time of his so i i would i would say yeah that that could well have been true because of the role that he was playing all right okay. got another one yeah so this one is uh interesting because it's been brought up several times by several covenant family including long-standing family so Mm-hmm. They want to know that if a person celebrates Pesach, you've said that continue with matzah or the rest of the invitations, they could be subject to eternal separation from Yahweh. Therefore, it would be better not to enter into the door at all. So they want to know if you would elaborate on this a little. And yeah. And, and it, want to know uh, where the key thing there is could be um, uh, those who celebrate Pesach correctly and do not celebrate matzah are not automatically destined to an eternity in Sheol, but that is, that is the basic scenario. That's why it is okay. so uh, hellacious. And, and this is a scenario that is practiced in both uh, Judaism and Christianity um, for different reasons, but it's the exact same uh, scenario. As a matter of fact, I found where uh, Jews got the scenario that Matzah was nothing but an ingredient and was no longer a, uh, a chog, no longer a uh, mikra. Uh, it was nothing but an ingredient, and it was Pesach that was seven days, not matzah that was seven days. Because in Yahweh's presentation in the Torah, chog matzah is the single most important event of the year for humankind. For Yahweh, uh, Yom Kippurim is the single most important day of all time. But for us each yeah. year, matzah is, uh, is clearly the most important of the Moed Mikre. And it is given every possible accolade. If God's got a term that says this is important, this is special, uh, this is the essence of your life, he applies it to matzah. And matzah is the umbrella, chag matzah, for the first three Moed Mikre, where whereby Pesach and Bakudam are part of matzah, not the other way around. Right. All right. So in, uh, in Ezekiel, in the, oh, the 45th or the 46th chapter of, uh, of Ezekiel, I'm kind of mind dumb with uh, Ezekiel at this point. It has really gotten to be uh, laborious uh, for me. But... Um, the Lord of Babel specifically says that uh, Passover is seven days and that matzah is not a, 
uh, a mikre, it is simply that you must eat matzah during the seven days of Passover. So here's the problem. Mm. Passover is symbolic of eternal life. It opens the doorway to life. It is the first, even before the first stepping towards God, we have to, to go through the doorway to life, and then we cross the threshold of perfection. You know, Yahweh says, walk to me and become perfected. We right. walk through that door of Pesach, which makes us transition our souls from mortal to immortal. Uh, it is the Mikra whereby the children of Yisrael who sacrificed that uh, Passover lamb uh, and marked the doorways of their homes with the sacrificial blood of that lamb and then had a wonderful meal with their families uh, that evening celebrating their freedom with the Yahweh, the firstborn children outside of the those celebrating Pesach died. And so to live, we celebrate Pesach. That is its point. It is the doorway to life. Uh, so what happens if you go from being mortal to immortal and yet your soul is still stained with the stench and stigma of religion and politics? Sure as heck yeah. don't go to heaven. And if your soul is immortal, it goes someplace. So where does it go? Ceases to exist or it's yeah, go to, eternally go to stranded. Yeah, go to Sheol. That's the reason why Pesach is part of matzah, not the other way around. Because it is on matzah that we are, our souls are de-yeasted. The fungus of yeast, which is that pervasive fungus that uh, permeates uh, our souls when we are either religious or political, that is removed, says that we have walked away, we have distanced ourselves, we have separated ourselves from religion and politics, and then Yahweh separates our souls. He paid a ransom where he allowed his soul to go to Sheol on this day as very much like a probe so he could experience it without actually having to be there, uh, but feel all the pain and the anguish of it. Uh, and he did that so that he could pay the price for us so that we could be ransomed um, from the stigma and stench of religion and politics. And so when you become immortal and you are, have your soul perfected by matzah, then you can be adopted, Bakurim, into Yahweh's family, and then Shabuah, he can enrich and empower you uh, in his presence and in the relationship. But if you become immortal, Pesach, but your soul is not cleansed, matzah, it can't enter heaven, can't be adopted into God's family. And there are only two eternal destinations for souls. Shamaim and, and, uh, and Sheol. So if you were to celebrate Pesach correctly, which is not likely if you're going to miss matzah, uh, and uh, you were then to skip matzah, you'd be off to Sheol. Now, in the case of religious Jews, what they do is they make chametz, the yeast, a missing ingredient as part of the seven days of, of uh, Passover uh, so that they have the 
life-giving experience of Passover, but they have completely eliminated the ability to be perfected by God. So for a Jew who were to celebrate that correctly, unfortunately it would be eternal life in Sheol. Uh, so when rabbis did that, when they bought into Ezekiel's plan, can't give Ezekiel any credit, it's, uh, it's the Lord of Babel who's, uh, who is speaking here, that's Satan, uh, of uh, making uh, Passover the, uh, the seven days and uh, matzah just an ingredient, then the fate of those souls who buy into that is the same as Satan's itself. Satan will suffer an eternity from Yahweh, and the only place to do that is in Sheol. It's, it's the ultimate timeout. So that's the, uh, the reason you do not ever want to celebrate Pesach without matzah or without making Pesach part of matzah so that you get the full experience. You become immortal, your soul is perfected, and you uh, um, are adopted into Yahweh's covenant family. Uh, it is the reason why of the seven days of matzah, that we began to consume unyeasted bread on the first, which is Pesach. Because that makes we, sense. We, we use them as a collective whole. So I hope that answers the, uh, the question. Okay. All right. Next question is by uh, Sharni, and she asked, she said she loves you, by the way, and thanks oh, you for well, your amazing you. podcast and amazing website, and uh, I have to agree. Everything is amazing. The, the website is just fabulous. So she asks, where is the story of Satan taught, and what is the true story? Um, okay, first of all, uh, I think the website is amazing now. I think our social media outreach is amazing now. I do think that the, uh, uh, the uh, repositioning of all the books is amazing. Um, and it is because of a team effort that uh, you uh, are responsible for the uh, social media outreach. You uh, do it, of course, with uh, with uh, Leah, my wife, and uh, and uh, Jackie and others. Uh, uh, Jackie, uh, who has now discovered that she is indeed Jewish, wonderful uh, news. Uh, she is our publisher and uh, is the glue that really keeps a lot of the family uh, together. Uh, and sure. uh, uh, and uh, David, uh, who um, uh, is really the unsung hero of all of this, uh, he has created the the website uh, and is responsible Great. for uh, updating it and, and really making it so useful as a tool for everyone. So this is a, a group project that we have all contributed uh, to. Okay, mm-hmm. so where is the story of Satan taught, and is it a true story? Uh, it's interesting that... Um, that Satan as a title, and it, it's Hasatan, it means the adversary. Uh, Satan isn't a name, it's a title. And it's a title that Hasatan, the adversary, actually hates. <clears throat> he is not named by title or by name in, the, uh, the, in his first encounter where he plays a, uh, a very important role, and that would be in Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> He is referred to as a serpent, which is um, a term that Yahweh likes to use uh, regarding him because snakes are toxic. 
Uh, they paralyze uh, a person. They can kill a person. They're serpentine, so they move on the ground uh, in a non-straightforward way. Uh, they're lurking where you do not see them. They live in holes in the ground and they, uh, in the darkness. Uh, they are frightening uh, uh, to us. Um, and so there's lots of aspects of a, uh, of a snake that uh, fit the adversary. So he is referred to as a snake, and so he's identified as such in the, uh, the story uh, in, the, uh, in the garden. Uh, and his technique there is, uh, is simply uh, to uh, misappropriate Yahweh's testimony and misconstrue it such that Chawa uh, believes him. Uh, now, there's some, really some interesting aspects to that first story, which is that uh, the conversation just begins. We're not told where he comes from. We're not right. told what he looked like, where he was, why he was there, who let him in. We aren't told any, and it's apparent that Chawa knows him. Jesus, we don't hear a, who are you anyway? <laughs> she knows him. He's been there for a while. And he has some working knowledge of what God has said. He has some working knowledge of, of Chawa's insecurities and uh, her uh, longings. So he's observed her. He has listened to Yahweh, and he uh, misappropriates and twists uh, something that Yahweh said uh, to play off of something that we later learn he wants the most. Right. What he offered Chawa is to be like God. That's the very thing that drives the adversary. He wants to be perceived as God. That was the ploy that he promoted in the garden. So that's how you begin to know about his story. All right. That most prolific presentation of who Satan is, where he will emerge, how he will act, what he is trying to achieve, even his name, is told in Yashaya, Isaiah 14. Uh, we cover it in great detail in, the, uh, in that series called Observations. Observations begins with a, with a proverb uh, written by Dode, a Bashal, and we begin to see this, uh, this play of, of good and evil, and, um, and it leads us to wonder exactly how Babylon, which Yahweh uses as the exemplar of all things wrong, uh, how it plays into this adversarial role and how it um, works in, in, this, in the terms of, of choices that we get to make. And so in, in Yasaya 14, uh, the entire chapter is about uh, an individual whose name is Hillel ben Shakar. And Hillel speaks of, uh, of arrogance primarily, um, of a desire to see oneself as greater than they really are or to be perceived as greater than they are, been some of the Shakar, which is sun. So this is a, 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 an illuminous source that uh, um, has an ego problem, Hillel ben Shakar. And what we're told is that he has an influence and will rise from a power base of Babel, of Babylon. Babel means to confuse, it means to corrupt, uh, it means to intermix and to commingle. 
just like the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. This right. is exactly that technique. We're going to commingle. We're going to intermix synonymous with the very name of Babel, Babylon, to confuse by mixing things together. No lie prevails if it is 100% false. Lies prevail by mixing truth and lies together such that they seem credible. Uh, and so it's out of this environment. So what do we find in Babel? What we find in Babel is the first place where religion uh, becomes institutionalized, where we have an institutionalized history of religion. It begins actually in Summa, which becomes part of, uh, of First Babylon. And then there's a Neo-Babylon that uh, comes later. And we have the first documentation of it, the integration of religion and politics and governments together and the institutionalizing uh, within the state of religion, very much like you see in Israel. Israel yeah. uh, had a letter of agreement as opposed to a constitution, and that letter of agreement gave sweeping powers and authority to the rabbis because there is this confusion in uh, Judaism that a Jew is defined by their religion, that Judaism and being Jewish are coterminous concepts when they're not. One is an ethnicity, uh, and the other is a religion. God loves one and hates the other. So um, in Babylon, these things coalesced. And what we're told in that story, and it's the most comprehensive story of Hasatan, uh, is that he... His ambition is to become greater than God, to be perceived as, uh, as Yahweh and rising over the Almighty so that humankind would uh, worship him as if he were God. Very much like the, the thought process, and this is woven through the same story in Yahshua, which is this, that there's this disdain for humankind. Uh, Hasatan, the adversary, Halil bin Shakar, is, uh, um, well, we get a lot of insights uh, regarding him in uh, the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is not only uh, Satan's autobiography, it is his game plan. And what we see is this utter disdain for humankind. And I think that's what happened in the garden. I think it is likely that Halil bin Shakar was one of the cherubim on the, the walls. That's how Chawa knew him. And that uh, he, as this creature that had existed long before Chawa existed, who was eternal and therefore uh, and was energy-based, therefore infinitely more uh, powerful and dynamic, um, could not understand why Yahweh found Adam and Chawa so alluring and why he spent all this time with them. And it was basically the story that you read in the book of Job, uh, which I do not think is an inspired book, but it's the same overall theme as Job, where uh, Satan is essentially taunting God and saying, you know, these people are nothing. They, they pretend to like you only because, uh, you know, of the things that uh, you've given them. If you were to pull those things away from them, they would, uh, you would see that they're worthless. And yeah. that is essentially what Hasatan is trying to do with uh, humankind. 
He's trying to prove right. to God we are worthless. His ultimate battle is that Yahweh has stated over and again that he's going to return with Dode on Kippurim in year 6,000 Yah. 6,000 Yah is 2033. Uh, Mamadi's uh, timeline is hopelessly errant. Uh, it is 2033 right. is year 6,000 Yah. Kippurim is the day that he is returning. It is the day of reconciliations. And Hasatan knows that if Yehudim and Yisraelites don't listen to Yahweh and continue this, this attitude against God where the Herodim won't even mention his name. There is no religious Jew that will even say Yahweh's name. They don't know him, don't like him, won't even pronounce his name. And they have their own religious festivals and their own religious deeds, and they have their own Torah, which is called the Talmud. Right. And if they continue that way, and then you've got a huge percentage that are progressives that couldn't think their way out of, uh, of a wet paper bag that are just hopelessly ment- mental cases, lack of mental cases. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, Satan uh, has a, uh, um, um, a replacement for the Mikray. It is all fool's day. He actually has a day that is strictly for nincompoops. So congratulations, progressives. You, you will have a day to celebrate your relationship with, uh, with Satan when uh, he uh, becomes manifest in uh, Jerusalem. So uh, he knows Hasatan cannot travel in time. He has, been, he has significant limitations put on him. Because if he could go back in time, he would really screw things up. And I don't think anyone is going to be able to interact and change anything in history, even if we are able to go back and experience history. uh, It's a paradox. We can't change anything because if we were to change something that caused us not to exist, we couldn't even be there, which means you couldn't be there to change it if you changed it because you wouldn't be there. So it's a paradox that uh, enables you to perhaps witness, but you, uh, you can't change anything. He is, uh, is similarly restricted. Uh, but he can read. And Yahweh's done a beautiful job of explaining what he's going to do and what he's going to do it. So he knows a lot of what's going to come, and he realizes Yahweh's going to come on this day. And if he can render it such that there's no one to show up, that we don't prevail at all, we are just complete failures. And even the the many, many Yehudim and Yisraelites and Goyim, all who have chosen to be part of Yahweh's covenant and anticipating his return, looking forward to his return, if they were all just to go the way to the dodo bird and say, well, we don't want to do this anymore, and you'd have no one that listens to these, reads the 30 volumes we've written on Yada Yah and these uh, tens of thousands of audio programs, and not a single person is there, then there'd be no reason for Yahweh to return. Right. There'd be no day of reconciliation because there's no one there to reconcile. That is what Satan is going for. He has to have a clean sweep. He is going to win the majority vote. Parliamentary system, he doesn't care if your party is religious or liberal. He's going to win by a landslide the popular vote. God's not playing that game. He's never striven to be popular. He wants to be set apart and different and special. And I can assure everyone listening that we are going to prevail. There is going to be enough Israelites and Yehudim looking forward to Yahweh's name, embracing his name, 
on Yom Kippurim for Yahweh to be thrilled. And so he is returning and he's going to be pleased with the results. But that is Satan's entire game is to, uh, to thwart that. Uh, and so throughout the book of Ezekiel, so I'm really glad we took the time to, uh, to write it. Uh, if you uh, read it, you will learn um, Satan's view of humankind and of time and of Yahweh and of him pretending to be God from the devil's own perspective. It's his autobiography and his uh, playbook. And so that's where you learn the most um, about him. All right. right. I think that pretty took care of that story. Would we have another one? Sure. All right. This is from a YouTube comment. Uh, he writes, I know people who read Yada's work and then took a DNA test and found out they were actually of Jewish descent. What DNA test do you use? Um, I used uh, uh, the second most popular, uh, 2-3andMe. Ancestry and 2-3andMe are the dominant players in, uh, in this. Uh, if you are interested in your family tree and you want to know um, who was your uh, great-grandfather and great-grandmother and great-great and great-great-great. And in family trees, if that's your thing, uh, then you want to do ancestry. If you want to, uh, to um, know uh, in a very user-friendly way everything about the history of, of the ethnicity of the people from which uh, you were born, where they lived, when they lived, and what percentage you are in a very quick, uh, efficient way, 2-3andMe, I think, is the, uh, is the best choice. They're both highly reliable. They're both going to give you accurate information. Um, Ancestry has uh, a few more, uh, a, a larger database to draw from, I think, 2-3andMe uh, is yeah. uh, uh, process the, uh, uh, that they use is a little more forthright and, and uh, um, uh, clear. Uh, but both of those two are just fine. There are four or five others that are smaller, but those are the two largest players, and it really depends on uh, what it is that you're, uh, you're looking for. Um, uh, Leah just uh, um, handed me a note and says, Leah recommends CGI genetics, uh, deep Jewish ancestry, and I know that, that she used CGI genetics, and it, uh, it does focus on trying to give you in, uh, uh, lots of information on, uh, on Jewish roots. Uh, I'm going to tell you that either of the two I mentioned are going to be able to tell you if you're Sephardic, Kanazi, uh, and, you're, uh, and you know, what percentage uh, Jewish you are. Uh, she likes the approach uh, of these, so there's a, a third choice for you. I'm with Leah on that. I, I think I've used the other two and I've used the third and uh, some of them are more geared towards modern population, whereas the one Leah is recommending will give you a little more into your deep history. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's GC, CGI Genetics. CGI Genetics is the deep history, otherwise it's ancestry.com uh, or 23 me. Okay. Oh, thank you. All right. The next one is, how do you tell by the moon phase whether or not it really is a new moon when the sliver is not yet visible for telling Matzah or Pesach? Okay. Uh, the answer is that um, we are not given that information. There's a lot of okay. conversation around it, but we're not specifically told. 
And the fact that we're not specifically told, I think, is for a reason. You can, uh, and, you know, you're free to come up with your own conclusions. But the very fact is, there is not a a Torah on how do you define a uh, a new moon. And, okay. And so here are just my thoughts on the whole thing. Um, today we have the ability to forecast back and forecast in the future using uh, um, astronomical tools that have been developed by science. And those tools were actually available uh, way back in the time of Dote, where uh, there were scholars at the time that came up with ways to chart the moon phases uh, way back in time and way uh, forward in time. So there was the ability to do an astronomical uh, new moon um, and knowing exactly when it was going to occur. Uh, The standard format, though, you would think that would have been used for the most part in uh, Yisrael at the time, uh, and particularly during the Exodus, as they were going across, because they would not have had any of those tools. So during the Exodus, there are none of those tools. They don't have access to anybody's um, uh, scientific uh, analysis. And so all they've got is observational. So you'd have to recognize that that uh, um, is likely how they would have operated. Now, observational is not entirely clear. Uh, Uh, precise you can just get close and that is that would you say that um, we have begun a new month when the first light on the moon's surface appears after uh, um, uh, sunset because after sunset we're actually into a new day so if the first light of the moon's surface appears after sunset as opposed to before sunset it's really the next day, not that day, not the previous day. So you've got to think of, of that because in the, the Hebrew textual calendar, a new day began when the sun went down, and it ended when the sun went down the next day. It's not like our cockamamie system where at, in the middle of the night at 12, 12 o'clock <laughs> in the middle of the night, you end one day and begin the next. So, you know, the choice was you either start a day at sunrise and that day ends the next sunrise or you start the day at sunset and it ends at sunset. And so it really depends on um, since it's it's based on the sun either way and it's 24 hours either way. Do you uh, have it begin at sundown and end at sundown? The ending makes a lot of sense. Or do you have it uh, begin at sunrise? and end at, uh, at, uh, uh, at sunrise the following day. Uh, and Yahweh's approach has been sundown, and I think there was a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is that the only way to effectively mark time before uh, uh, automation was by the moon phases. And the moon phases are a lot easier to see at night than they are during the day, so it was a, a logical approach to, uh, to doing things this way. Uh, so the question then becomes, um, what is the vantage point? Because, uh, you know, I live uh, in a place where I'm essentially at uh, sea level. And 
at sea level, you have the most atmosphere to look through, and the uh, uh, and you don't have near the vantage that you might have from a hall, tall hill. But what if you are on a short hill and you have a taller hill um, uh, in, in the direction of the moon, so that you can't see it until a certain time? What happens if the time that you're supposed to observe it, it is hazy or cloudy and you can't see it? Do you presuppose that it's going to be there because of what you saw the previous night? Um, when there is one-tenth of one percent of renewed light on the moon surface, you can't distinguish that with your eyes. Do you count that because it technically is a renewing moon? Or do you wait till there's at least one percent or more, which is a discernible amount? So these are questions. Yeah, these are questions that that Yahweh has, enables us to reason through to come up with a system that we think is uh, right. The furthest you're going to be off is one day. And the fact that you could be off a day is a very good thing. And the reason it's a good thing is that the religious are very into being precise and claiming they're precise and claiming that they, that they know when it is much better to think. And because you can't be absolute certain every year whether it is one day versus the next because of the time of, uh, of uh, the renewed light uh, before or after sunset and the amount of it and, uh, and the obscurity of the sky, these kinds of things. Uh, you can be off by a day, and that is a very good thing because you're not going to be dogmatic. What you're going to do right. is, a, is, a, is opposed to saying it is this time we mandate it. Uh, you can say, I think it's this day, but you can, you can reason uh, through it, and it could be the following day. Uh, because thinking is a good thing, but the most important thing is you're going to realize it's what the day represents that we should be focusing on, not so much doing it on the right day. A great example of this is uh, when uh, Hezekiah uh, um, was given a copy of the, uh, the Torah, that had been languishing in the, uh, the temple in Yah's house and uh, read it and said, oh, boy, we're in deep doo-doo. We got the uh, 180, what, 6,000, 185,000 Assyrians uh, coming to pummel us just like they pummeled the northern kingdom. We're toast. And, and I'm reading this, and everything it says don't do, we have done. And everything it says do do, we have not done. And so, you know, he... Um, uh, he said, I'm going to take this seriously. We're going to do exactly what it says we're supposed to do. And so he started cleaning house, getting rid of all the religious artifacts throughout uh, Yahuda, Judea, uh, and uh, sent people out to destroy them. And then he realized, I've got to get the, uh, the Kohen, the Loe Kohen, the priests trained so that they know how to perform on behalf of the people. That took some time, and he finally just came to God and said, I can't get it done in time. Yeah. Uh, but this is important. Can we have a, uh, a two-week delay and to just do it two weeks late? Yeah, I said, fine. And then when they started doing it, and it was so much fun. It was so rewarding for them. Uh, he said, can we do this <laughs> some more? I, I know the time is not right, but we're having a good time. Can we do it some more? God said, that's fine. It's not about the timing uh -huh. is what it represents. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I do think you can use uh, the astrological um, system, the scientific system, 
we do it in, uh, in the calendar that we have provided on the, uh, on the site uh, to tell you what those days, give you the information so that you can actually determine the days. Um, and, and we do, that's our goal. We want to provide information so you can think it through and be part of the thought process. Um, what I've come to the conclusion is that um, it's the renewing light on the moon surface such that that renewing light uh, uh, is clearly visible um, uh, prior to the sunset for that to be the first day and that it is 1% or more uh, uh, to count is kind of my uh, <clears throat> my reasoned conclusion and that uh, in terms of determining the first month of the year it's uh, the the, uh, the month uh, the new moon uh, that's uh, closest to the vernal equinox because uh, the vernal equinox is the is the time this change in, in weather pattern that that uh, um, is most consistent when the first uh, ears of barley would uh, be emerging on uh, on the grain. And so uh, I've used that as my reference because obviously there aren't a lot of barley farmers that are checking to see if their grain is uh, a beeb uh, and uh, Israel that are uh, reporting to us, nor the climate situations is the same in Israel now as it was then, nor is the, is uh, the artificial watering the same as it was then, nor is even the seeds the same, nor the, the uh, farming methods. So that's what we've come up with as, uh, as our way of, um, of judging these, uh, these times. And it seems to go really well if you go back in time, you can use the exact same methods and determine uh, the days that uh, uh, are important in history uh, in this regard. And I know you've done that uh, in your timeline. So that's my my answer, and I love answers where I say I'm uh, I can't be certain, but there's a lot to learn just in trying to understand this process and empowering you right. to make your own decisions. I think that is vastly more important than saying this is the answer. Right. All right. So another question is: When we are all harvested, do you think you will also be with us? Oh, I certainly uh, hope so, uh, but uh, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, my first introduction to, uh, to being around uh, occurred when um, I was just uh, having a chat. I was still in Fort Lauderdale with, uh, with Leah. Uh, Asher was still a, a puppy, my uh, uh, yellow lab. And uh, and I'm really fond of uh, of my uh, my Asher and uh, our Asher and and I said hey yeah yeah is there any way you know that uh, come to Rua that uh, you know man's best friend can come with us I obviously you, you like dogs you wouldn't have named them uh, Colab All Heart and and the response I got is where do you think you're going and yeah. and it uh, led directly <laughs> to figure it out, uh, idiot. One of the two uh, witnesses named, the other one is not. And uh, how come you haven't picked up on it? Because I made it really obvious. Where do you think you're going? Um, so um, <laughs> I began to think through that. And then um, uh, my hope is that, uh, that we all um, enjoy Tarua uh, together. I think it's going to be uh, um, on Tarua in 2029. Um, and that uh, I get a, a six-month um, 
originally I thought it would be a vacation, but with so much at stake, I'd love to be able mm-hmm. to use that six months to um, prep for what's going to yeah. uh, to follow. And what a bet! <laughs> There's no better environment to prep than uh, than that one. But you know, it, it's such a short period of time. We have all eternity to look forward to. Uh, it's game on with Hasatan. He's uh, he's playing for a clean slate. Um, I'm going to lose the popularity contest. I know it overwhelmingly. All I've got to do is uh, is have uh, some uh, very smart, open-minded, receptive uh, Yisraelites and Yehudim uh, ready and embracing Yahweh's return. And Yahweh's happy. I'm happy. Uh, we go on <laughs> to eternity. If it's better that, uh, that I stay, I stay. But um, um, my hope is that I get to uh, to move on. And the you know, the idea of being one of the two witnesses, we should just um, take a moment. I've said this so many times, but we know that, that one of the two is Elia. Elia is an interesting case because there isn't a single, uh, there's not a book uh, of prophecy from Elia. Uh, Yahweh provided Elia with very little prophetic insight he served as the conscience of his people and i think he's chosen because he's going to play the same role there's no reason to be prophetic uh at uh, during those three years somebody's got to serve as the conscience of his people i think he's going to serve exactly in the same role and yahweh is um is not politically correct uh, he still has a sense of humor. He loves sarcasm, and there's never been anyone better at it than Elia. So no the kidding. attitude, <laughs> yeah, the attitude is sarcasm, and it's somebody being excessively judgmental. Yeah. Elia has never been exposed to Christianity, to modern Judaism, uh, to Islam, or to progressives, to communism, to any of these things, and so while. Yehudim and Yisraelites are the prime audience, and he will be the most important player. There needs to be a voice that can address the uh, others in the room. Um, right. And uh, it's uh, very likely that I'm going to be that uh, other voice. Uh, it's never an honor. I mean, that's one of the things that people get screwed up on. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. listen, being, being Dode, being the Messiah, being king, uh, being uh, Yahweh's uh, announced son, being the uh, uh, Yahweh's uh, firstborn uh, from uh, his uh, from an inheritance point of view, I mean, Dode has every accolade known to man and known to uh, God. Those are honors. Uh, Moshe was given the great honor of being the great liberator of uh, his people and being the most extraordinary uh, prophet. Um, being a witness. You're chosen for reasons that work for Yahweh, but it's not an honor. It's not, it's not a prestigious thing. It's just that Yahweh never works alone. He wants somebody that will do the job the way he wants it done, and he will fill in the gaps if you're willing and give you the ability to accomplish the, uh, the mission. Um, and he likes working with people who he doesn't have to explain the things that he hates, like Moshe was the foremost expert at the time, on the religion and politics and militarism of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. And so he had already chosen to walk away from those things, hated those things, and so that's the reason God chose him. Uh, 
you know, I, I was once a, a Christian. I, I now hate the religion. I uh, uh, was once very political. I'm now anti-political. It helps to do those things. It also helps to have spent the last 22 years, and I'll have at least uh, another uh, uh, six or seven here, um, preparing. You know, it's um, pre- preparation is an important criterion in, uh, in all of this. So. <laughs> Uh, and Absolutely. clearly, I am very judgmental, and I'm exceedingly sarcastic, and those just happen to be things that uh, Yahweh fancies. So, okay. uh, we will see what uh, what happens in this regard. But uh, um, I uh, I think it's going to be a, an exceptional experience, and uh, actually looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I um. They also write, uh, how do you think you'll get to Israel from that point? What's the question again? They, they're they asking, uh, after we're all harvested, if you think you're going to be harvested or not, how do you think you'll end up in Israel? Oh, that's God's problem, not okay. mine. That's, <laughs> that right. is his problem, not my problem. Uh, I have my uh, my preferences. I happen to to enjoy uh, private aircraft, and I happen to, it's a terrible thing to say, but I do. I'm a pilot. I, I love uh, private aircraft. I, I don't like the feeling of, of commercial travel. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I I have preferences on accommodations because I need to uh, to unwind. I, I'm, uh, I'm not a concrete jungle kind of a person. So I have my preferences. Uh, he's asking a lot uh, of us during that period of time. I think he's going to accommodate our, uh, our our personal preferences. Um, so uh, you know, I hope it's a uh, a positive experience. But that's not my. I can assure you that is not my responsibility, and I'm not going to worry about it. If he wants me to ride a uh, a donkey there, and the donkey can swim, we'll figure out a way. Figure out a way to make that happen. <laughs> Let's hope for the airplanes. Yes. Far more enjoyable. Yes. All right. So you mentioned on the radio something in Daniel where Dode describes having a few people working with him in addition to yourself and Elia. Do you know who these other four people might be and what they will be doing? Um, what I did is screw up. Um, it's uh, been known okay. to do it in the, uh, the past. I just uh, I spoke. Uh, you know, I was... Um, in the midst of the, at that point of uh, of coming to uh, grips with uh, Daniel, I had no idea what I was going to find. I mean, I mean obviously we know the prophecies that that uh, are in Daniel seven, as it speaks of the uh, of the evolution of the beasts uh, from Babylon all the way to the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, we know the great prophecies that are in uh, Daniel nine don't know that they speak uh, almost exclusively of uh, Dode uh, as opposed to the uh, the one that everyone is confused about. Um, the, uh, and there, there is a, in that, and I would, in fact, I, I, I even wanted to see if I could find it, uh, and, um, and I couldn't even find it uh, today, but uh, there is, there, there, there was uh, a reference in there that seemed to suggest uh, that uh, Dode was uh, going to be accompanied by some individuals uh, as he uh, um, came back. And, you know, he has big responsibilities. He's uh, king of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, one never works alone. He's going to work through 
this uh, this man in that uh, in that role. Uh, and, and clearly, Doe's going to have staff. I had thought that that might have been a reference to it, uh, but it was one of those things where you uh, um, when I'm dealing with material that is is convoluted as is uh, Daniel and Ezekiel. Um, what you typically do is you translate large swaths and then you kind of go back and do your commentary as to as opposed to just doing the commentary with each statement uh, yeah. because you you know you're it's one thing to know Yahweh and to be able to translate things that his prophets reveal and because he's always consistent it's always a uh, an enlightening experience you can just say this is what this means and this is why when you're dealing with uh, things like uh, daniel who was a, a dunderhead and ezekiel who is essentially speaking for satan you, you do need to uh, to take a, a step back from time to time and say all right this is this is the ploy that is being um, used at this point and uh, and i think uh, it was one of the things that i'd I had uh, looked at and was in the midst of uh, translating and, and spoke mm-hmm. of my enthusiasm for material. And, uh, and on, as I went back into it uh, the following day, uh, I realized eh, probably is probably a different interpretation of this. And, and for anybody that wants to read uh, um, uh, that book, it's been published uh, and is available both at Amazon and uh, also um, on the website. Uh, but it's the first of the three volumes on Babel that sits uh, off uh, towards the right side of the bookshelf before the books on Questioning Paul. But it's volume one on Babel. Volume two and three are also posted. All of uh, two is done. That's the first half of Ezekiel. Uh, volume three is the one that I'm still laboring uh, on. I'm down to my last uh, chapter and a half on it. But uh, David actually have, uh, yeah, have been posting it in advance but um anyway i'm gonna have to pull uh right. i was a i was a dunderhead and spoke out of enthusiasm as opposed to uh to knowledge and on further investigation uh that's not what that, that particular passage was uh, speaking about the thing that was really interesting though there is there is an interesting aspect of this um daniel clearly is not a prophet um Daniel was a religious and political nincompoop. The whole first six chapters of uh, the book of Daniel uh, are uh, are indicative of the birth of Judaism and Christianity, and, they, and God hates both, so it's really a nasty story. And as you get into the rest of the book, when Daniel speaks, everything he says is wrong. He, he can't get current history right. If you can't even get current history right, you clearly are not a prophet. But he is visited by uh, by two individuals who clearly are prophets, and one who is a witness to the prophets. And so it's it's there's three individuals that that visit with him um, that uh, know what they're talking about. Um, uh, two are prophets. They uh, when he is speaking of, of Gabriel. Gabriel is based on Gabor. The Gabor of God is Dode. It, uh, it is exceedingly clear that Yahweh uses uh, Gabor more pertaining to Dode than anyone else. And so the Gabriel, the Gabor El uh, of, uh, of Yad is, uh, is Dode. And he's the one that's actually speaking of himself 
in the ninth chapter that Christians have been screwed to think that there'll be an arrival of the Christ. Uh, and the, uh, the one uh, making the connections between um, uh, Epiphanes, the, uh, the Sadducee uh, Greek Macedonian ruler that was so horrible to the Jews during the Maccabean period uh, and serving as the model for the Torahless one that will follow, um, uh, I think that is Elia that is, uh, has been uh, brought uh, into duty. Neither of them do hoots of Daniel. They, in fact, mm-hmm. um, uh, dode as Gabrielle says, you know, I'm here and I want to tell you, we think you're an absolute dunderhead. Uh, the story needs to be told. We're going to tell the story uh, here in the midst of Babylon so that you know what's going to happen, but we're not doing it because of you. We're doing it in spite of you. Um, is, yeah. the, uh, is the story. And uh, uh, and since there are two witnesses at the end, and we know one is Elia, uh, we can figure out who Mecca-El is uh, uh, by association. But I do think that's mm-hmm. the interesting part, is that you have a prophet and a witness to the prophets that are speaking to him, and what they say is valid, and it proved uh, to be profoundly accurate, uh, in the midst of a book that most of what is written is and said by Daniel himself is untrue. Okay. It's also interesting that in this regard, since the book of Daniel and Ezekiel are kind of bookends, they're both things that were revealed in Babel in the, uh, in the heart of the beast, that um, the latter chapters of the book of Ezekiel, starting around 44, 45, that, that range, there's the introduction of a Nasi and the Nasi is translated as a prince. He's an elevated individual. A Satan has his variation of dote. And mm-hmm. I think the, the Nasi is um, the human incarnation of Satan. And, and you know, we, we read about this individual uh, as Gabriel, uh, who is dote, tells us about him in the ninth chapter of Daniel. Uh, we read about him again in Ezekiel. And I think it is this Torahless one uh, that uh, um, becomes the uh, incarnation, if you will, of Satan during the, uh, the final showdown uh, in uh, Israel. So uh, I think there's a combination between those, uh, those two things that fits together. Interesting. That's really interesting. All right. Next question. You ready? <laughs> All right, so we have uh, the webmaster, David, and Jim and Frank all touched on this subject, and they want to know that they recognize Yahweh says he will protect us, but is there anything that we ought to do to protect our families and ourselves against economic collapse and uh, the threat of nuclear war, or, um, you know, will we be taken out of here before this occurs? Okay. Um, First of all, um, uh, I I had a number of occasions to uh, speak uh, behind uh, David's back uh, uh, this week uh, in the sense of how much um, we are, I am, even Yahweh is in debt to, uh, to him. Uh, this is an extraordinary man that has, uh, has made what we do um, so much better. He is such an effective contributor to Yahweh and to the covenant family and on behalf of uh, Yahweh's mission to reach his, uh, his people. 
So my first inclination is to say to David individually uh, that uh, if there was anybody on earth that uh, Yahweh is going to make certain uh, has the ability to do what he wants done, it's, uh, it's David. So I, I just don't see David at being as, at any risk. Um, God uh, uh, is very clear, particularly in uh, Mismore Psalm 91, telling us uh, that those who are engaged doing his work, he will protect. Um, right. And so I, I sense that that will be the case um, with, uh, with him. Now, generally, though, uh, so beyond, since he asked the question for the program and not just for, uh, for himself, um, the, the answer here is, is really straightforward. Uh, and it's, it's not one that everyone's going to like, but I'm going to tell you the way it is. Um, uh, this is a very short period of time. Here we are in uh, the spring of uh, 2023. We're uh, 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 a month from Pesach. And uh, was going to return uh, on Yom Kippurim, October 2nd in 2033. Just a little over 10 years away. And there's going to be a harvest of, of covenant members between now and then. And I think that it will be on uh, Teruah in, uh, in 2029. That's, uh, what, just uh, six and a half years from now. So it's not, there's not a lot of time. So, and eternity follows. So the answer is trust and rely on Yahweh. Uh, accept the terms and conditions of the covenant. Uh, Attend the Moed Bekre, celebrate your relationship with him, and you're golden. You're going to spend all eternity with Yahweh being empowered and enriched and enlightened and, and emancipated by God uh, and living in his presence and exploring the universe. What in the world is, is another well, six to ten years? It's nothing. Yeah. So the, the bottom line is don't worry about it. And if you're doing something that Yahweh sees as essential, then he's going to take care of you. So don't worry about that either. Now, in terms of uh, just the, uh, the baseline, what do you do to prepare? And I think we ought not be stupid. There's no reason for God to give us all this information if he doesn't want us to think it through. He wants us to be thoughtful, to think it through. What are the kinds of things that we can do? Well, uh, of course, spend more time than you normally would becoming prepared, because when you're prepared, you can make a difference in people's lives that uh, are going to endure for all eternity. Uh, the next thing you can do is I don't think it makes as much sense in today's world to live in a concrete jungle. I mean, if I lived in Washington, D.C., I'd get out. If I lived in New York City, yeah. I'd get out. If I lived in London, I would move. I would move to a less congested place where you have a much better ch uh, chance of surviving during a period of anarchy than you will in a city. So that's one of the things you can do. Uh, you can buy seeds for vegetables and mm -hmm. other kinds of things in case your supermarket runs, uh, runs lean on those things. You can buy a freezer and have it uh, have more 
protein than you would normally have. You can buy freeze-dried food and, and have uh, that as well, but you can't overdo it. And I don't want to be a doomsday prepper. I, I'm just not. Right. Uh, but uh, there is nothing wrong with having a, um, a supply, a responsible supply of food and water and of other materials for your home, so long as you don't overdo it. Because if you overdo it, you become a target. And right. you know, I'm not. I, I'm, as I'm a, a, I, I happened when I had the the farm. Loved to go out and shoot tin cans off logs, but I'm not a killer. Um, right. And and I, I, I might shoot somebody that was uh, threatening to harm my wife, but I'm not going to shoot somebody because they're hungry and want to uh, steal some of my uh, food. Uh, so the gun is only a marginal utility. I happen to live in an, you know, an island in the middle of the uh, Caribbean uh, and in a fairly even isolated part of the, uh, the island. You know, I, I chose to get out of the, the big cities. I'm not in a place where anybody's going to drop a nuclear bomb or anyone close to it. It'd be a complete waste of a bomb to send one here. There's not going to be an invasion here. Uh, so, you know, choosing a place to live that's a little more isolated probably has an advantage. Having some uh, food stashed away and, and uh, water and those kinds of things for a period of time and, and just tools. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, my wife and I are pretty handy. We have every gardening tool uh, under the sun. Uh, and so we're reasonably handy in, in that regard. We have our own gardens. Um, all prudent things to do, I think, in, uh, in this time, and we spend a disproportionate amount of our time studying. Um, yeah. Now, I'm sure that some are looking for investment uh, ideas, and, uh, and I'm here to tell you that there, is, there are none, because right. currencies, which is how we, we uh, uh, buy and sell things, are, are completely manipulated, and they are an, an object of faith. Uh, the U.S. dollar has actually no dollar, no worth other than uh, what is perceived um, and by faith. Um, gold, which has been a counter, uh, is so manipulated by governments. It's manipulated for a specific reason, because if it was allowed to float freely, uh, it would uh, expose the weakness of, uh, of the currency. So they do not allow that, and they will confiscate it, uh, given the, uh, the opportunity. Certainly the, uh, the Bitcoin kind of thing. It's being exposed all over the place as uh, is not being a reliable uh, form of of investment. Um, yeah. So there really is nothing that uh, you can do that will insulate you uh, in uh, entirely. Some would say because of the Great Reset, where loans are going to be uh, forgiven, that you're better off having a loan on your house. But what are you going to do with the capital? Because the capital in the bank is not worth a whole lot of anything. Uh, so there really just isn't a good answer to that. And um, as um, next question, we had two Covenant family ask about Dode and Jonathan's relationship. They want to know if uh, this unique relationship was not in a you know sexual manner, but just what that unique connection might have been. <clears throat> but I'm afraid I've can anyone hear Craig? All right, I guess I'm by myself right now. And I think we've gone over pretty much all the questions that uh, we can fit in for today. Um, 
I don't know where Kirk is today. If anyone hears from him, tell him that we are thinking of him. And I just wanted to thank Leah for coming up with this podcast idea. It was really cool. I know there's a lot of requests from others to um, do some more of this, the Q&A. So, all right, guys, I'm going to end the show, and uh, happy Shabbat Hello, to everybody. Can you- can you oh, hear me okay, again? Hey. Okay, so we yeah, did uh, get back in. <laughs> uh, we only have a couple of minutes left in the broadcast period, so we, we'll probably have some questions that we'll uh, we'll deal with in uh, in future shows. Uh, so uh, I lost my train of thought as I was trying to get back in. What was the question? Uh, we had a couple covenant members ask about the relationship. Oh yeah, uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, D- David and Jonathan, <laughs> uh, Dode and and. Uh, uh, oh boy. I think we are having technical difficulties. Oh, oh you're back. <laughs> okay, so you don't, um, you can't hear me now. I can hear you now. I'm sorry about that. Okay, all right. Uh, all of the terminology related to their relationship suggests that it was a lot more than just buts. That's just the reality of it. Um, their their initial relationship is spoken of in a very loving, loving manner. So it appears that they, you know, it, it's, it's true that there are men who love other men, and it's a purely platonic kinds of thing. That does not appear to be the nature of this relationship. Um, when um, uh, Shaul, Saul, king, uh, addresses Jonathan about it, he speaks of it as the relationship as being a great shame. And actually speaks of the relationship as so shameful, it's like seeing... Uh, his mother naked and uses the term naked and relates to it as this great shame, not a, a, uh, a bad decision, but a shameful act that uh, is, is as embarrassing as seeing his mother naked. It goes on, though, to, to describe their um, last visit together. And their last visit together, Dota is, is hiding he sees uh, uh, Jonathan's, uh, one of Jonathan's friends leave, and he immediately comes up from behind a rock. Uh, we see him uh, genuflect all around uh, uh, Jonathan, and then he lays down on the ground. And we're told the two of them began kissing, and the kissing is in the imperfect, which means it was ongoing. And... The love that is the word for love is not is not ahab the just the standard verb for love. It's ahaba, which is uh, love from a feminine perspective, and it's used uh, twice okay. in that context. And then you go on and and he's speaking of Jonathan during the uh, his eulogy, and. He says that his love for Jonathan was much more, uh, and it's the terms are are uh, are uh, speak of things that are extraordinarily beyond the love of a woman. And so I think it is likely that uh, their relationship was uh, well. Currently, I mean, they they kissed. Um, yeah. Uh, at one point, uh, uh, Jonathan uh, undresses in front of him. Now it's to give him his, uh, his uh, uh, you know, shields and sword, bow and arrow and this sort of thing. But he uh, it says he takes off his robe. So uh, I think there is, that 
the language is so graphic in this regard that there would be no reason to use that kind of language unless it was right. true. Okay, now some things to keep in mind here. Yahweh does not speak against homosexuality. The two uh, statements that are attributed to homosexuality actually say that it is inappropriate to take for a man to take advantage of another man when he's down. Uh, and it had all to do with the way that uh, people fought wars back then where the victor would uh, sodomize the, uh, uh, those that they had defeated. And it was a, a, just a horrible disgrace and it's something Yahweh did not want to see. He does not like the idea that, that love between people should be forced uh, uh, upon uh, on another person. Uh, so I think now clearly uh, Dode at the very, uh, and so the same way too with Jonathan, that there's a possibility they would have been uh, bisexual because uh, I mean, Dode loved the girls. I mean, he had uh, 10 concubines and, uh, and eight wives. Uh, and I mean, he went to extraordinary lengths to uh, beyond the pale, uh, doing some really bad things to have a relationship with Bathsheba. So he clearly loved women. Um, and um, um, so all of that is, uh, is also true. The reason I'm intrigued by this is that um, the religious, particularly in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, make this huge deal about homosexuality, but yet you don't see homosexuality written in any one of the ten statements that Yahya Chin Stone. So it's, and the statements that God has against uh, the act uh, don't actually speak of homosexuality. They, uh, they actually speak of taking advantage of somebody when they're down. Uh, and so to have the person that Yahweh loved the most, who he said was right, who was the, the, the ultimate exemplar, be a flawed individual who, who was, you know, very, very emotional. Uh, in fact, it says yeah. that, that uh, Dode weeped over, uh, over Jonathan, and he w- wept far more than one would have expected over him. And it's just, it's a emotional weeping. That Dode made a lot of mistakes in his life, and I'm not even saying this is the mistake, uh, but he did make a lot of mistakes. And, and, but to have the person that Yahweh loved the most, uh, love both a man and love women, and love lots of women so that he is not in a, Christian or Jewish monogamous marriage uh, speaks volumes about how the religious are wrong about being so caught up in uh, their view of promiscuity and sexuality. God created sexuality, and uh, it is a wonderful thing to to make love with someone you genuinely love. Is I think is the greatest invention of all time. And so, uh, clearly, Yahweh knew what he was doing. He's not embarrassed by it. Uh, Dode's many wives, his uh, concubines, were not a concern to uh, Yahweh. And this relationship is never apologized for. There's never any, any uh, shame uh, in it. Uh, I mean, Shaul shames it, but Shaul's a, a bad guy. So... Um, I view it uh, as uh, as likely, and uh, and I view it as um, uh, perfect in the sense that the one man that Yahweh said 
Uh, he's a man after my own heart. He's the man that I view as right. For him to have uh, sort of the full palette of love, if you will, uh, and for that to be so contrary to these wacko religions, uh, I, I th think is, uh, is poetry uh, in, uh, in that regard. So um, um, I, I think it's, uh, it's likely true, and I think it actually teaches us a wonderful lesson that the world does not want to, uh, to hear. Um, and I would say that, um, I guess it's fair to say, since this is questions with uh, Iada, that uh, I'm a hypocrite in, in this regard. Um, <laughs> I, I have no issue and never had any issue with someone who is uh, homosexual. Um, doesn't, you know, uh, some of my best friends, I have celebrated relationships with uh, men and women who are uh, homosexual. It does not bother me at all. Um, I understand why women would be uh, bisexual. I get it. Women are beautiful. Why wouldn't uh, a woman love a woman just like a man loves a woman? Women are beautiful. Uh, and, uh, and okay, but the idea of two men making love together gives me the creeps. And I've just said that I've got no problem. In fact, I enjoy their friendships. I think that they're some of the more uh, uh, creative individuals are fun to be around. I enjoy their friendships, but it, the act of two men doing it does give me the creeps. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm a hypocrite in, in this regard, but I'm an open-minded hypocrite in the sense that I will tell you exactly my perspective on it, what I think is God's perspective uh, on it. And, uh, uh, and so it kind of suits uh, someone like me to tell you, this is how I think it, it really is. And, I, you know, I've, you read the language, and I think we'd be kidding ourselves to suggest that that language was written that way for any other reason than to tell the story. And it has a moral. And the moral is yeah. that uh, love is love. And when you're loving someone that's, that is genuinely a good person, and Jonathan and Dode were, were exemplary people, uh, and they, they had each other's back. They were willing to take a stand at great personal risk to do the right thing for their people and for one another. Um, I think this is actually God saying, if your attitude is right, if your character is right, uh, then love is a beautiful thing. And so uh, we should be more open-minded. That's my, uh, my view on it. Uh, and I understand that most people will say uh, that uh, they would disagree with me, but uh, those are my thoughts. Okay. Do we have time I can for hear another you question? were pretty quiet during most of that. That probably took you. That's probably not the answer that you expected. Actually, it's the answer I gave myself. Oh, okay. I, uh, I've had this conversation with several people, and I do think that it's possible, and I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I just yeah. wouldn't want to see my own mother naked, so I can kind of empathize with the yikes of that for some people. Um, yes. Uh, not that I want to have anything in common with Saul, but the wording is pretty clear and you know, I don't really have uh, – I'm kind of with you. I think women, artistically speaking, are softer. You know, that, that feminine aspect is beautiful to me, mm -hmm. not a yes. lesbian or anything, but I don't have a yes. problem with that. And uh, I think it makes for a more interesting eternity. If yeah. we have not all these rules, we can be free. I would like that, yeah. you know, to have my freedom. And uh, yeah. for those that are interested in that, there's plenty yeah. of places in the universe to go that I don't have to watch. <laughs> uh, 
the reason I, I, uh, I'm glad that this question was asked is that I think it directs our attention to the things that Yahweh views as important and away from the things that religions think is important. Homosexuality is such a big deal in Judaism and Christianity as it is in Islam. Yeah. It's a huge deal. And, you know, the Christianity, of course, is totally hypocritical because Paul was a homosexual uh, <laughs> and uh, Muhammad uh, was, was a, a bisexual and, and actually hated women. Uh, so it uh, and, uh, and and rabbis are uh, sexual perverts. So it yep. you know it's they're they're all hypocrites. But Yahweh did not is not the ultimate um, uh, cosmic killjoy. That's saying I'm going to make something that is really explosive and and sensational and wonderful, and then tell you if you uh, do it outside of just these very tight constraints it's going to take away all the fun then it's uh it's uh bad he's just not that way he never once with all of the relationships that dode had uh the only issue he ever had was you know you you did uh you did your man bad by uh by sending him into a battle where you thought he was going to get killed because you wanted Mm -hmm. uh his uh his wife that was really a lousy thing to do and you ought not have done it it wasn't that, what's wrong with you? You know, one wife was good, two wives not so good, eight wives really bad, on top of having mm-hmm. uh, ten concubines. So, yeah, uh, it's Yeah, all of Yahweh's about this are respect. Yeah, Yahweh has no issue about it. Uh, Abraham, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jacob, the, the father of Israel, he's got four women. <laughs> you ever hear Yahweh say, no, 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 we're not going to count some of those uh, people because... Uh, you know, one wife, no. That's, uh, so God's view is so different. But the most important part of the story isn't just that God's not preoccupied trying to say sex is a bad thing. Because it isn't a bad right. thing. It's a wonderful thing. Is that, uh, and we ought to enjoy this aspect of life. Just don't do it in a perverted way. Perversion mm-hmm. is doing a family member. Perversion is doing somebody that has no freedom doing it with a child, doing it with an animal. These are perversions. Don't do that. But in right. a loving environment, it's a positive thing. But the most important is, it's what these two individuals represent. They were good men. These were men right. of character. These were men that stood up for each other when standing up for each other was exceedingly costly. Right. And so... They, they stood up for their people. They stood up for one another. They stood up for Yahweh. Uh, they were thoughtful, kind, uh, intellectual men of character. And right. that's the reason that they were attracted to one another. And so we should also view those traits as being attractive. You know, I, I had a friend ask me. Story. Yeah. Well, along these lines, I had a friend, Covenant family member. She asked me if, you know, adultery is wrong, um, why? Because basically, if we're allowed to have multiple partners, and in what context right. is it wrong? And she mentioned Reuben um, going, you know, uncovering his father's skirt, so to speak, with uh, the concubine, his father's concubine. Yes. And I explained, yes. you know, this is an incestual act. It's, it's the intent right. in his heart to hurt his family. 
that right. I thought was the problem. Yeah, it was to degrade his mother, uh, well, not his mm-hmm. mother, but his uh, his uh, degrade brother's his mother. father and his father's uh, uh, his brother's mother, and it was a uh, it is an act of incest. God is really against incest because of what incest does to the victim of it. It is a, right. It's like pedophilia. It's a horrible thing to perpetrate because of what it does to uh, to uh, someone. Um, you know, it's like rape, where uh, the person has no choice. You're you're forcing yourself on them, or you're using your position in the sense of uh, pedophilia or incest to uh, to take advantage of someone. God does not like that at all. Um, and in the case of Reuben, uh, I think he did force himself. She did, wasn't aware. Yeah. And then yeah. her relationship with Jacob was over after that. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that uh, I was uh, trying to translate a, a Hebrew word that uh, that uh, suggested the terminology that uh, the Lord of Babel was using to describe his uh, uh, new digs, the uh, the Lord's lair, um, was as a concentration camp. And uh, uh, the word, that. the root of Auschwitz is even used in, in his uh, presentation. And he's creating a prison with uh, with gates. Uh, and uh, and people being killed crematorium, uh, and and so as I was uh, dealing with this, and I wanted to prove that the term that he chose means prison uh, to confine someone. Uh, the the word is actually introduced in a story that pertains to Dode. Um, when Dode made a horrible decision, uh, first to leave Jerusalem. Uh, when Absalom was uh, leading the rebellion, he should have stayed in, in Jerusalem and should just have relied on, uh, mm-hmm. on Yahweh to resolve this problem. But he did. He fled. But second problem is that he didn't take everyone in him. He had his ten uh, lovers. Uh, you know, We don't know how that word in today's vernacular is a concubine. That wasn't a word that existed at the, at the time. But, but he had uh, ten women that he, uh, he had uh, sexual relations with. They lived with him in his home, uh, which does not sound like a good idea to me. Uh, I'm, I'm ha- very happily married with one woman. I cannot see how, <laughs> how having two would, would be better. Uh, and uh, and uh, 18 does not sound like a good idea to me. Uh, but that, nonetheless, that's I don't that's think Leah would tolerate that. <laughs> no, and, and, I'm, and I'm happy with that, you know. It, yeah, I don't blame one's her. wonderful. <laughs> And, and, and listen, I don't have a problem with with Dode having uh, uh, 18. It's, uh, it's it would not be my choice. Um, so I, I don't even have the energy for it. So no, I, no. So you and I don't mean that really emotional energy. I mean it's mental energy. Sure. Uh, you just keep stimulating intellectually, causing people to feel like I have value. But he chose to leave these uh, these ten women. In his home with uh, Absalom, uh, knowing that Absalom would, would waltz into Jerusalem because he'd abandoned it. Mm-hmm. And so, what did Absalom, who was just a absolute scallywag, what a horrible human being? Yes. Uh, what he did is he publicly defiled those women. He raped them. All ten of them. Put up a tent in the middle of town and publicly raped them in front of uh, the town. And so, Dode came back and he couldn't bear it. And so he confined the ten women. He, he took care of them. He, you know, he said, uh, "I'm going to 
put you up in a nice house, and uh, but you're under house arrest. It was a house arrest. I took care of them, made certain that they uh, they uh, they had provisions, they were in a, in a, a decent uh, environment, but he never visited them again. Right. And it was a uh, it was a confinement sort of thing. I don't think that was the right call either. So I think if you're going to uh, to do what he did, it comes with responsibility. He did not honor that responsibility. Um, you know, I think he did honor his responsibility with Jonathan. I don't think he honored it with uh, with all of his wives and with um, his uh, his other lovers. But yeah. He's a complicated individual. He is a, uh, and I think we ought to be very appreciative of the realization that there's very few people in, in God's story that are presented as um, men of outstanding character and intellect all of the time. Um, Moshe is the premier example there are none of us that can measure up to that man he no he is just he's too good too smart <laughs> too articulate uh too great a character uh too much energy he, he's he's just he's just way way beyond us we, we we can't measure up dode with all of his soaring intellect and his his uh, uh charm and his courage, we can actually measure up because he was highly flawed too. And so <laughs> same thing is true with, uh, with Abraham. Same thing is true with Jacob. These are men that were flawed. And so we can't use them as exemplars uh, to try to model our lives off the things that were the best of them because they're uh, flawed and real people as opposed to this, you know, paradigm of, uh, of perfection. Um, so I think there's a real advantage of that. Uh, isn't it better to be in the company of a God that's, that knows who you are and willing to accept you uh, as yeah. you are and make, the, the, and, and make something wonderful uh, through your life as he did with uh, Dode? even though Dode, you know, made some bad decisions. So God's not expecting us to be perfect. I'm sure not. Right. But yet, Yah can use us in a mighty way, even though we are less than perfect, so long as we have other characteristics that he finds useful. And Dode had those to uh, an extreme degree. Right. Well, Dee, we've uh, we've had a... uh, I've had a, a good experience here. I know we haven't gotten through all of these. I'm uh, I'm happy to entertain the uh, the rest of them um, uh, at uh, next week. Um, I don't know how many more you have on the uh, the list, but we'll uh, we'll entertain the uh, the rest of them next week. And if somebody um, has a follow-on question or a new question, send them to uh, to D. You can post them on on the uh, any one of the three uh, social media sites, and uh, D yeah. will pick them up and. Um, and she'll read them during the show, and we'll we'll have the opportunity to go over them. And if we did not get to your question, you posed it. It's just because um, I, I I it doesn't really matter if the question is uh, sensational or not. If it's an opportunity for us to learn together and us to talk about Yahweh 
and the way that we approach him and the way that we reason, then I think it's a great uh, experience and an opportunity. So I'm going to share my thought process more than just the conclusion. So I think an, an answer okay. without the, the thoughts that comprise it is, uh, is not worth doing, but it is worth doing sharing how you come to a conclusion so someone can come to that same conclusion with you. Um, it's like sitting in, in, uh, as part of a lively discussion as opposed to mm-hmm. being dictated to. I, I, I don't like the role of dictating. I do like the role of, uh, of teaching and engaging and the, uh, and the process to stimulate uh, others to think. So that's why the answers were, uh, were long. So we'll continue this okay. next week. Thank you. It's right. lovely. Thank I enjoyed you all. it. I hope uh, I hope our our good friend uh, Kirk is okay, and that uh, sure. and that yeah. we'll uh, we'll hear from him uh, shortly, and that he'll be able to join us uh, this time next week. And thank you, uh, Dee, for for hosting this and for uh, providing these questions. Uh, uh, hopefully, there's enough to Thanks do another. Thanks, Yeah, yes, Le- everybody I think loved Leo's it. Also, one of this. Yes, all right. Thanks so much. All right. Okay. Shabbat shalom. Good night. May God bless. All right. You too. Bye bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.